The Fanboy, episode 125. Hi, everybody. Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 125 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, look, there is a, a lot to talk about and not a lot of time with which to discuss it because I'm leaving in just about an hour to go help my wife, and, or actually not help her, so much as give her some moral support. She's getting her second vaccination shot today for the uh, COVID-19, and she could use a little moral support, so I'm going to be going with her in about an hour, but I want to get this show to you within a reasonable uh, frame of time here. So let's go ahead and, and, and dive right on in, shall we? One of the big topics for the last several months, really since the middle of last year, when it came to DC's future, and yes, of course, I'm starting with DC. I mean, what else am I going to start with here? Hello? Listen, I don't have a lot of time for filler on this show, so it's all going to be the stuff that matters the most, okay? So here we go. So since the middle of last year, DC has been trumpeting everything they could about the multiverse. You know, Jim Lee is very big on the concept. It came up a lot at DC Fandom. And we know that the Flash movie is going to be leaning heavily into it. And so it's been a major topic here on the Fanboy Podcast because it's a very interesting approach. It doesn't necessarily compare itself in a one-to-one -one fashion to what the other big comic book property in Hollywood is doing. You know, there they have the whole cohesive, coherent, shared universe with one central architect kind of calling the shots and doing that model. While at DC, they seem to kind of want to break everything up into, listen, anything that you're watching can take place. Everything that you've ever seen that's DC is all part of the same exact canon in a way because it's all united through the multiverse. So if you loved this version of the character, guess what? That that version of the character still exists in some way, and maybe we could follow them up in a cool HBO Max thing or in an Arrowverse thing, or perhaps in the comics, they're going to do extended stories for certain characters. You know, there's this idea of like DC has become a buffet rather than one canon to pay attention to. Just know that it, it it's all connected. It is all connected in a way, and if we want to have things that work together, we can. And listen, to a lot of people, that sounds like chaos. To a lot of people, it sounds like DC's way of throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. And while I have championed this approach, thinking, you know what, this is going to be a great way to try and you know have your cake and eat it too. Where, you know, there will be a little of something, a little bit of everything for every kind of fan within the DC tent. I try to view it optimistically in that way. But a lot of you do come back at me sometimes with like, listen, you keep speaking the, uh, singing the praises of this multiverse concept, but it really just sounds like it's, you know, they're just throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, right? So, uh, there was a recent interview on The Hollywood Reporter at The Hollywood Reporter, with HBO Max's Casey Bloys. 
And uh, actually, I don't know if he's HBO Max. Honestly, there are so many different entities now when it comes to Warner Media and Warner Max and Time Warner and Warner Brothers. I honestly get a little confused and I need to try to get uh, a little more solid on those facts. But Casey Bloys, who is an executive at one of those major entities, um, sat down with The Hollywood Reporter and the question was essentially about the confusion within the DC world. I'll ask you the question exactly as THR asked it, and because I think his answer is rather interesting. He said, there's a lot of brand confusion in the DC world. You've got movies, the TV-related spinoffs, then stuff from DC Universe, the CW content, and then Max Originals like Green Lantern and Greg Berlanti and Justice League Dark from J.J. Abrams. Is there an objective here? And here's what Casey Bloys said that I think you might find interesting. He said, I just started to get involved with the DC content in August. Peacemaker is one of the first shows I greenlit and one of the first shows coming out in January 2022. It's a great example of what HBO Max can do with DC content in that we're producing at a level we haven't seen DC content on TV do thus far. It's been one of Warner Media CEOs and Sarnoff's priorities to organize the DC world for exactly what you're talking about, to make sure that the universe is logical and makes sense. She talks about the flywheel, that the movies speak to the TV shows that speak to the movies, that it's all connected. There's a lot of work going on in that in, uh, sorry, <laughs> there's a lot of work going on in that at DC and Warner Brothers. That is very much something that Anne has made a priority and the company is doing. It's one of the things in terms of Warner Media today versus Time Warner five years ago, 2016, shade alert. I have regular conversations now with Toby Emmerich and Jim Lee, and we talk about all things in a way that wouldn't have never been discussed before. That's probably how you got a little DC over here, a little DC over there, etc. The idea going forward is that we're talking with one voice about the DC universe. It's a really valuable world to have, and we have to make sure we're using it correctly. So for those of you who heard that word salad and are not exactly sure what Bloys was trying to say, is essentially... Several years ago, things actually were disorganized. Everything was sort of on its own. You know, the Arrowverse didn't really speak to the people working on the DC Universe shows. The people on the DC Universe shows really had no say in what was going on in the movies. Everything really was sort of disjointed. But that essentially now all the heads of departments are speaking as one unified thing. They're all basically comparing notes and trying to see how best to maximize the DC universe and, uh, and this library of characters and deciding which projects will work with which and making sure that there is a sort of internal logic to make sure that all of this stuff actually makes sense. So, you know, I heard that and that was very sort of uh, reassuring. And in a way, you know, if there's a way for them to present a unified front, despite there being so many different kinds of content and different versions of these characters, you know, if they're able to, through all of this seeming, seeming confusion, if they're able to present a unified vision 
I think that would be amazing. You know, because something I was talking about a couple of weeks ago with uh, over on the Twitter was about this idea that like, will people be able to accept DC as a success unless it's doing something on par with what Marvel's doing? In other words, without a very logical, interconnected, shared universe, can DC ever be seen as being at least on the same level or perhaps better than Marvel? Because, you know, there are certain fans out there who now that they've tasted the shared universe, now that they've tasted a cinematic world where all of these heroes coexist under the same umbrella and can therefore interact and cross over into one another at will, kind of like in the books themselves. You know, there are a lot of fans for whom once they got a taste of what that's like, the idea of now taking a step back and saying, well, Robert Pattinson's Batman has nothing to do with Ezra Miller's Flash, who has nothing to do with uh, Supergirl on the CW. You know, th th this idea of like everything is completely segregated. Uh, that idea doesn't appeal to them. And to them, you know, DC will always seem like less than or inferior to Marvel until they sort of, quote unquote, get their act together and have one unified vision where all of these characters can play and coexist together. And, you know, this sounds like the first bit of evidence that there is going to be an effort to unify all the different forms of DC content into one shared vision, where all the heads of department are basically able to call one another and go, hey, I'm thinking of doing this. Does this interfere with what you're doing? How can we make this uh, help what you're doing? Or how can we have what you're doing set up this new idea that just came in? You know, it's this idea of a cohesive, creative vision. Now, you know, my big question is, you know, is that going to be easy to do? How, how deep into the multiverse are we going to be going? How geeky are we going to be attempting to sell this concept to general audiences? How far are we going to go with it? Because it could be hard if, you know, if you're showing kind of like in the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover, where there's like dozens and dozens of Earths that we visit throughout the thing. And there's this idea of like, you see a little title card in the beginning and it shows you, oh, now this story is on this Earth and that story is on that Earth. Like, I don't know if they're going to go so far as to try and differentiate all these things or if there will be one mainline continuity that has the vast majorities of these characters seemingly within the same Earth and that every once in a while, if a filmmaker like a Matt Reeves comes in, they're able to go, okay, great, but we don't want to be part of that earth. We want to be a separate earth. So we're going to do something that sets our version of this character apart. You know, it's going to be very interesting, I guess, just in their messaging, how they market these things, how they convey these ideas to the fans. But I got to tell you, if they can find a way to, you know, present one coherent, cohesive vision and make it so that the stuff I'm watching on Arrowverse somehow informs the stuff I'm watching on HBO Max, which plays nicely with the stuff in the movies. I mean, that would be unbelievable, you know, because let's not, you know, let's not forget Marvel had a very long time getting their act together when it came to that. You know, it really isn't until now. It isn't until right now with WandaVision that Marvel has been able to put forth a unified creative vision across TV and film. 
You know, the, the, there was the whole thing where Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was originally supposed to be a spinoff from the Marvel movies. There was the stuff where Daredevil and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and Iron Fist, that was all supposed to be set in the same New York that we saw in The Avengers. And they kept, you know, referring to the, the Battle of New York and all of that stuff. Like... Early on, Marvel was trying to sell us on this idea that, hey, it's all connected. Whether you watch it on TV or in the movies, it's all one big story. So enjoy. Here's just more details. Here's more information. We're adding more layers and depth to the same unified story. You know, that, that's kind of how they presented it originally. But ultimately, those series ended up not really being connected. None of them. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. had its moments, but overall, the Marvel TV shows from several years ago have nothing to do with what's going on on the big screen. So now with WandaVision, as of this year in 2021, is when Marvel was finally able to figure out or, or, or get all their ducks in a row so that they could actually do this. But now DC is going to attempt to do this too. And, you know, it, it's going to be very interesting. You know, we know that Peacemaker with John Cena is already filming, and that's obviously going to have some connectivity with James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. I mean, he basically wrote the Peacemaker series while on, like, some downtime during the quarantine, so it all comes from the same mind. It's all synergistic. It's all part of the same grand story. So in theory, if you watch The Suicide Squad... Peacemaker is going to make a lot more sense. And if you watch the Peacemaker series and then watch the Suicide Squad, you're going to see, oh, so this is who that character really is. And this adds a little extra layers to that character. You know, there will be synergy. And there's not only going to be synergy when it comes to Peacemaker, because it was also revealed... I mean, confirmed, really. Although, honestly, who didn't see this coming? But, you know, it was also confirmed that the HBO Max Gotham PD series will, of course, connect with Matt Reeves, the Batman, because Matt Reeves is producing the Gotham PD series. And there's all the reason in the world to assume that we're probably going to see Jeffrey Wright's Commissioner Gordon or Jim Gordon appear on the Gotham PD show too. And there's going to be things about the Gotham PD show that will heighten your uh, ability to love the Batman series and vice versa. So that's all very exciting. This idea of the shows and the movies working together. And basically in this last week, you know, Casey Bloys has come out and, and, and they're, they're trying to make it very clear to fans. If you want to see a shared unified vision, you're going to get that. You know, what's interesting, too, about this quote is that, you know, um, in the question, they name drop Green Lantern. You know, the, the Green Lantern series that's coming to HBO Max. They name dropped uh, Justice League Dark that J.J. Abrams is currently shepherding. So, you know, the idea that all of these things are going to be working together is really kind of like if you're, you know, if, if you're a DC fan and open to the infinite possibilities of the types of stories that can be told. Yeah, that's all very exciting stuff. That's all very exciting stuff. And, you know, in general, too, the synergy goes beyond the creative. That's another bit of news that's come up since we last spoke. Because there are now reports that the CW and HBO Max are basically trying to make a deal with one another. And that's the interesting thing, right? Because, again, there's so many different factions within Warner Brothers and Warner Media and all this stuff. Like, it is not just one main office where everyone works. There are different groups within it. And right now, the CW group 
is talking to the HBO Max group to try to come up with a deal that'll make their shows look better. Now, what I mean by that is there's a deal being discussed that would find HBO Max co-financing some of these Arrowverse, you know, these CWDC shows. And the way it would work is, you know, one one of the uh, proposed ways that this arrangement could work is that HBO Max, you know, pitches into the budget of whatever the new, the CW show in question is. And then that show will premiere on HBO Max before going to the CW the next day. So it's a way to give HBO Max that surge of people who want to see this show, but then ultimately it'll be going over to the CW. So it's a weird sort of compromise. And ultimately, HBO Max will be the home for all of these Arrowverse shows. All of the Arrowverse shows, when they become available for streaming, are ultimately going to be available probably exclusively on HBO Max at some point. So it's important for them to establish a relationship and some synergy between the Arrowverse and the stuff happening on HBO Max. But this also explains why Superman and Lois look so great. Because look at what a Superman and Lois show can be with a higher budget. You know, th- th- those teasers I've been talking about the last couple of weeks, the better suit, the, the, the more cinematic, artsy tone. You know, Superman and Lois already looks like it's going to be head and shoulders above most of what we've seen from the Arrowverse thus far. And part of that is because of the increase in production budget. And they lowered the number of episodes and they, you know, they, they found ways to make this thing look like a movie. And it sounds like they don't just want to do that for Superman and Lois. They want to do this for all CW content moving forward. So if they can strike up a deal with HBO Max where HBO Max can open up its purse strings and go, okay, we're going to add several million to your budget, but we get to air it first. And ultimately, your show is going to end up on our service. So it works out for us to make your show look amazing. So imagine that. Can you imagine? Because you know, the Arrowverse has kind of been, I mean, listen, it's, it's arguably been one of the most successful bits of DC content in the last 10 years. That whole universe, you know, the excitement that it's generated, you know, the, 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 the people who love that stuff really love that stuff. And I may not be one of them, but I can acknowledge the success. There wouldn't, you know, if they weren't having success, because success... Greg Berlanti would not have like 19 shows he's producing right now. They keep asking him for more because the numbers this thing is producing, the passion it generates in its fan base, everything is trending in the right direction. So this Arrowverse stuff, while it's been a huge success, I feel like there's been a certain amount of resistance to it because it looks like the cheap, low budget version of the stuff we see in theaters. But if we can fix that perception... If part of this new unified one vision approach to DC, if part of that is making sure that the Arrowverse shows look more like the HBO Max content, then we all win. Then we can no longer knock Arrowverse for being like the cheap, low budget cousin of what I'm going to see in the movies next week. If they could all have a similar uniform level of quality. Um, I think, you know, it helped the entire DC brand. And for those of us who've been clamoring to see basically one universe where it's all coherent and everything looks and feels alike, um, that would be like a home run. 
And granted, when I say it looks and feels alike, that doesn't mean that every project that has DC on it has to have the same tone or the same whatever, but at least the same level of quality, you know, where the costumes look like they're made by freaking amazing costume makers, not like you just bought it at Party City. You know what I mean? Everything should have at least a certain level of acceptable quality before these shows make air. And it sounds like the people who run all of these Warner things, <laughs> it's so hard for me to, you know, whatever, the, the, the Warner Brothers Media Max conglomerate, um, it sounds like it's now on their mind too. It's a priority for them to make sure that all the shows have a sort of uniform level of quality. And I, for one, am excited for that. And since I brought it up, I feel like I should touch on WandaVision because, listen, I was the first person a few months ago to be talking about how little interest I have in this series. I don't know why. For me, it was almost fun because I couldn't understand it. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't pride myself on being a killjoy, but I would see people sharing articles about WandaVision. And I kept seeing all the promo imagery and I just couldn't. For some reason, none of it just sparked anything in me. Um, and, you know, I just I just could not care. I didn't understand why people were so into this. And, you know, it took me five weeks, but I finally checked it out last week. And across two or three nights, my wife and I binged all of the first five episodes of this seemingly only season of WandaVision. And I got to tell you guys, I was super impressed. I really enjoyed the aesthetic. I really enjoyed the acting. I really enjoy the ambition of it. It's a very sort of interesting way to, to unfurl a story and to add layers and depth to the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it. They're doing some interesting stuff that's going to be laying down the groundwork for the things we see in Spider-Man 3 and in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I mean, I'm not going to do any spoilers here, but that last episode ended with one of those things. I mean, hearing vaguely what occurred at the end of that fifth episode is why I ultimately said, okay, fine, fine, I'm going to check out WandaVision. You finally convinced me. That and, of course, the growing buzz. With every week, I would just hear more and more about, hey, don't sleep on this WandaVision show. You know, there's a lot going on here that's going to be of interest later on. And Elizabeth Olsen's doing great acting and Paul Bettany has always been a great actor. And you kind of get to see them do their thing now. Because that's something else, too, that, that that's, for me has been a pleasure is getting to see these actors really kind of like spread their wings and show what they can really do in these roles. Because that's something I've thought about for years that I've noted for years, which is... The Marvel Cinematic Universe is loaded with phenomenal actors, but for a lot of them, aside from their origin movie, they really have very little to do moving forward. You know, like take Sebastian Stan, for instance, The Winter Soldier. Everyone loves The Winter Soldier, and everyone loved his movie, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. And you'd be hard-pressed to find a Captain America fan who doesn't have a huge soft spot for the relationship between Steve and Bucky. So, you know, there, in general, there's all kinds of warmth and, and attention that goes towards Sebastian Stan's Winter Soldier. And it's all positive. It's all good. And yet, when you think about what he's had to do since the Winter Soldier, 
Just take a moment to think on that. You know, in 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 Civil War, he had a few moments to shine, but in terms of like getting to act or show levels for for Bucky, it was rather minimal, but that's arguably where Sebastian Stan got to do anything other than look cool. Because after that, where do we see him? We saw him in Infinity War where he's really barely there. He's just there to kind of like be brooding and have his big robotic arm. But what does he really do there? Same thing with Endgame. Aside from just kind of having a few action shots, here's Sebastian Stan, a very talented actor who was in I, Tanya and other stuff, who's got great range and seems to really love this business. What, is, what did he have to do? You know, he's part of the biggest movies in history. But if you actually were to isolate his scenes, he's just there in a wig and makeup, standing around hitting iconic poses. You know, he's not getting to act. He's not getting to do the thing that actors want to do on movies, you know? So one of the things I love about WandaVision, as well as the upcoming uh, The Falcon and The Winter Soldier, is that it's going to, it's giving actors a chance to actually do something with these roles, to really make them their own and expand them in a way. Because Elizabeth Olsen is the same way. Elizabeth Olsen is a talented actress. But aside from her introduction and a few standout moments, by and large, what she had to do through her first four Marvel movies was stand there hitting poses with her hands and staring off at imaginary enemies so that the effects team can then put red power beams by her hands and make her look much cooler. You know, Elizabeth Olsen, as an actress, hasn't had a lot to sink her teeth into. And that's what's cool about WandaVision. And the and same thing for Paul Bettany. You know, the, the, now they are front and center. They get to do some interesting acting in some unorthodox scenarios and add a little bit of range and depth to their portrayals of these characters. So for me, as someone who just last week was discussing how much I miss acting being a special effect, it was kind of cool seeing Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany kick ass in those first few episodes where it was mainly just them and kind of getting to see Olsen do the stuff where she channels what women acted like in the 50s and 60s as she made her, you know, Wanda in those first two episodes feel very classic as she she literally conveyed a lot of the conventions of acting at that time. You know, she's got chops. She's a good actress. And Paul Bettany, we've known for years. He's been around for a long time. And he hasn't had a ton to do in these movies. But now, in WandaVision, we get to see what Homie can do. It's pretty cool. And I cannot wait to check out episode six tonight. And I cannot wait to see where things go. But the only thing that I will mention before moving on is... You know, the, the big surprise at the end of episode five, to me, exemplified what a bummer it is to know so much about the stuff you're watching. You know, because there was a casting alert that went out last summer, in summer of 2020, about this show, which as soon as I heard that casting alert, I'm like, oh, I know what they're doing. This is crazy. Are they really doing that? And then when I saw the episode five surprise, I'm like, oh, so I, I called it last June, you know, and this isn't like patting myself on the back like I figured it out. But in general, like when you have a good detailed oriented memory and you hear about certain castings, 
you make certain connections on your own and inadvertently spoil things for yourself. So sometimes I wish I wasn't reading up on all this current news. Sometimes I wish I didn't know as much as I do because without that knowledge, what happened at the end of episode five might have made my head fall off. And since I touched on Spider-Man 3, I may as well touch on the recent rumors that came up as as recently as yesterday that, you know, all that stuff about Tobey Maguire is going to show up in Spider-Man 3 and people think it could really happen. Well, yesterday, something happened that set the Internet ablaze. Every scooper and their mother started talking about Tobey Maguire last night. And there's also, you know, Tobey Maguire has now just returned to Twitter. And it would appear that the, 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 the connotation of all this is that the rumor has become reality. And at last, Tobey Maguire has set foot on the set of Spider-Man 3. And we're going to get some sort of insane, mind-melting, multiverse crossover in Spider-Man 3. So, listen, I... Um, I'm super excited and intrigued to see how they do this. I'm, I've also, you know, the, the, while we're discussing rumors, you know, there's also been talk of a Luke Skywalker level cameo in WandaVision at the end of the season. Remember how Mandalorian season two ended with, you know, something that broke the internet. You know, Mandalorian season two ended with Luke Skywalker voiced and, 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 uh, what do you call it? You know, motion captured by Mark Hamill returning to the role of Luke Skywalker in star Wars. You know, that, 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 that changed a lot of people's lives. And there's been rumors that there's going to be a similarly epic cameo somewhere at the end of WandaVision. And imagine if it were Tobey Maguire. But, I mean, I don't know how that could be. I honestly, you know, I'm not sure. Personally, I think, you know, I wonder if it has something to do with Magneto. If perhaps somehow they're going to acknowledge that Wanda and her brother are both Magneto's children at last. You know, I have no idea how they're going to do this. But if they get Magneto, you know, will it be Ian McKellen? Will it be Michael Fassbender? I feel like, you know, part of me wants there to just be a, an all-new Magneto. Maybe there will ultimately be one. But when I hear people using the term like a Luke Skywalker-level cameo, that tells me that it won't be someone new. You know, part of what made Luke Skywalker, you know, what made that appearance so special at the end of Mandalorian was it was the Luke that we that we knew from earlier in the series. So a part of me thinks that if this if this comparison is apt... If this supposed cameo that's on the way is supposedly on the level of Luke Skywalker's appearance in The Mandalorian, then that tells me it needs to be someone we've seen already. And I don't think there's anyone from the Marvel Cinematic Universe that could show up on WandaVision that could be compared to the Luke Skywalker thing. I mean, even if you want to go and somehow get Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Tony Stark to show up, A, I don't see how that fits into the story or how it helps anything. But B, he also like just died two years ago, so it's not really much of a shocker. So really, you know, there's no one within the proper MCU who I think can make people lose their minds over anything. So I feel like this has to be someone from one of the other Marvel universes. This needs to be someone from either the Fox movies 
or from Sony's Spider-Verse end of things, which really, you know, aside from Tobey Maguire would just be the Amazing Spider-Man series. And I don't think that that would count as Luke Skywalker level. So I'm going to go ahead and say that if there is indeed some insane mind-melting cameo at the end of WandaVision, it's going to come from the Fox X-Men universe. And that's crazy to me, right? Because that, that was one of the things that a lot of people were, were skeptical about. You know, that now that Disney has bought Fox, what are they going to do with the, with the X-Men that have lived on Fox for the last 20 years? Were they just going to completely ignore it and start over again? Were they going to find a way to merge the two franchises? And it's starting to feel like they're trying to find a middle ground between the two. So some of these Fox characters are definitely going to coexist. I mean, we knew that already to an extent, right? Because a couple of weeks ago, it was finally confirmed also that Deadpool 3 is coming out. It's being written right now. Ryan Reynolds is working with a scriptwriter that Marvel Studios is overseeing it. It will be in the vein of the first two films. So we already know that they were going to resuscitate Deadpool. But through WandaVision, it's, it's becoming pretty clear he's not the only mutant from the previous franchise that we might get to see crossover into stuff. So I'm very excited for that. And I'm very excited to see how all of this helps set up the weird and exciting places that uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going next. And since I see I'm already legitimately starting to run out of time, I better wrap up on my last few notes here, which of course bring me back to DC and Zack Snyder's Justice League because some of the other big bits of news that happened this week were that Zack Snyder released official images of Jared Leto's Joker and how he's going to look in Zack Snyder's Justice League when it comes out on March 18th. He's got an interesting dark look with the long hair and the smeared makeup, and he looks like he's been locked up in an asylum. We'd heard rumors in previous weeks and months about a, a road-weary, world-exhausted uh, Joker. And it looks like that's exactly what we're going to get. And he also, you know, said some things about how, you know, he wanted to give Ben Affleck's Batman and Jared Leto's Joker a chance to meet before the, the these characters wrap up. You know, he said, you know, um, he basically said it would be such a shame to get all the way through these, these arcs of these characters without having them have a real confrontation. And I'm glad he's given us that because if there's a, if there's a big what if that I will always wonder, it will be the what if of Ben Affleck's Batman films. And what would it have been like to watch Academy Award winner Ben Affleck as Batman versus Academy Award winner Jared Leto as Joker? And at least we're going to get a little taste of that in Zack Snyder's Justice League, it looks like. And, you know, as, as part of, of that coming out... You know, it once again opened up discussions about whether or not we should expect there to be sequels to this or anything. You know, that that debate continues to rage on as his fans continue to, to support the idea of restoring the Snyderverse, which, as I've always said, if the numbers back it up, if, if, if this thing proves itself to be more than just a social media phenomenon, if the actual numbers justify it, there will be more of this Snyderverse stuff. Um so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But one thing I, I must give credit where credit is due is, you know, Mr. Snyder is brilliant 
when it comes to his marketing. You know, he knows how to whip up a frenzy online. And he knows that the people at HBO Max who greenlit this were paying a lot of attention to the social media buzz. So basically for the last couple days, he's been dropping something new almost every day. You know, we didn't just get the Jared Leto footage. We also got a glimpse of Steppenwolf uh, amidst a really crazy, intense, violent battle, and he's decapitating an Amazon, and it's all kinds of like... Crazy, epic, Zack Snyder level, you know, imagery. So he, you know, so he released that and that got a ton of buzz. And then yesterday he released a 15 second, well, maybe not him specifically, but Zack Snyder's Justice League, the promotional wing, released a like 18 second trailer tease. Because folks, this Sunday, Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2021, we're going to be getting the next full and seemingly final full trailer for Zack Snyder's Justice League. And in that 18 second clip, you see more of Steppenwolf being a badass. You see more quick images of the Justice League and sort of what's what what we can expect from this. And then it ends with this shot of Superman in the black suit shooting laser beams, you know, very intensely down at someone. You got to assume it's going to be Steppenwolf. It looks like it's another version of the shot that we saw in the theatrical cut when he, you know, blasts laser vision onto Steppenwolf. You know, it's a pretty well-known shot at this point. So if you can picture him doing that in the blue and red suit in the theatrical cut, now imagine it's black and looks far more intense and it's in its proper context. So, you know, for a lot of people, they're excited for that. When I, when I logged on to the Twitter yesterday, I scrolled past like 15 or 20 different fans who had isolated just the shot of Superman with his glowing red eyes about to do his intense attack on whoever it is he's fighting at the time. And they're all just like swooning and they're all just like, Oh my God, I cannot wait for March 18th. Oh, and it's, it it reminds me, you know, it reminds me that there's always been a bit of a, of a difference of opinion when it comes to Superman and when it comes to the types of imagery that fires up Superman fans, you know, because, you know, there there is a certain iconography of like Superman when he's been pushed too far. And and there's all kinds of examples of that kind of artwork where you, you see Superman where he looks darker. It's more almost like in a silhouette and the eyes are glowing and, you know, that imagery has been used in lots of different comics, in lots of different media. And, you know, I've always seen fans that drool all over that stuff, that they love the idea of seeing Superman sort of push too far and like, oh, now you've done it. You know, Mr. Nice Guy is not going to be nice now. Here's the glowing red eyes. It's about to be on in here. And, you know, again, there have always been people who see that and their imaginations light up. And for me, that's never really done it. That's never been the version of Superman that speaks to me. That's never been like, I would never want a poster that looks like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not, that's not the type of Superman story or situation that speaks to me as a fan. But, you know, there have always been kind of differences like that. You know, just like I remember after Superman Returns came out, there was a big debate over on bluetights.net. I remember lots of different users basically arguing about, you know, whether or not Superman should punch something. 
that, you know, Superman Returns sucked because he didn't punch anything. There were lots of people who posted that who were like, you know, I could have dealt with everything else in that movie, but he didn't punch anything. And that's what I think is ridiculous. It's 2006, gosh darn it. With the effects we have today, you know, we, we should have had some sort of crazy balls to the wall action scene for Superman. And instead he just lifted an island. You know, and there and and I, I there's always been that sort of thing where people wanna see Superman kick ass and they wanna see Superman punch something. And that whenever a story of Superman's is a little more nostalgic or a little more driven by like heart and kindness and emotion and less on oh, you done pissed off Superman. You know, that somehow those kinds of stories are lame unless he gets to be unleashed on the villain like that. And, you know, that's just not my thing. But, you know, it was clear from that 18 second teaser for the trailer that, you know, what, what can you really convey in 15 to 18 seconds? You know, all you can really do is cobble together a bunch of iconic images that you think people are going to see and go, whoa, I need to see more of this, you know? And when I saw that and I saw that that was the visual of Superman that was used in it, you know, it just sort of reminded me once again that, you know, this is not, you know, Snyder's version of the character is not necessarily the Superman that I have any interest in, you know? So, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to put that out there because, there are different kinds of Superman fans, and that's okay. I'm not upset at those of you who love the glowing red eyes. I'm not upset at the people who were swooning at the gifs that were created of that angry Superman visual in yesterday's teaser. Listen, I think March 18th is going to be a... It's going to be Christmas Day. It's going to be Christmas Day for the people who love that Superman. You know, and, and another example of like the sort of differences of, uh, of opinion within the camps of the Superman fandom. You know, there's also those kinds of Superman fans who love the idea of him fighting Batman and have engaged in those debates since middle school about who would win and Batman with the kryptonite arrows and Superman could just break him in half without even trying and all these little, you know, debates about Superman and Batman fighting. I just, I was never part of that. I, I was never interested in that. So it just, um, I guess it strikes me as interesting that like within the Superman fandom that I've now been a part of for, I don't know, 34 years, probably. Um, I've always kind of noticed that there is a slight sort of break between the fans and the types of imagery that lights up their imagination and, and makes them get excited to see this character's next chapter, you know? And, Seeing that teaser yesterday, that little teaser for the teaser, you know, in a way it was sort of sobering. And in a way it sort of reminded me, it's like, that's right, Mario, don't go into Justice League expecting to see the type of Superman story that puts a lump in your throat and brings all the right emotions. This is going to be more of the Superman that we saw in Batman versus Superman. And, you know. Give it a chance. Listen, I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to do it. I'm not looking forward to having to watch a four-hour movie to then decide if my kids can watch it because then that means I have to watch eight hours of this movie in probably fairly rapid succession. But, you know, I'm going to walk into this with an open mind. And for those fans who are super excited about the Snyderverse, 
Listen, I hope you get the continued adventures of this DC world over on uh, on HBO Max. But hey, that's my time. So until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>